this morning, um, I know you're surprised a little bit probably to see this table here. Uh, nobody was actually, we usually do this on the first Sunday of the month, and here we are in the middle of the month, and the Lord's table is in front of us, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But before we jump into that part of our message, I want to start with a question that's kind of a dangerous question to ask in the context of a church gathering on Sunday morning, and that is this, what is the best meal you've ever eaten? What is the best meal you've ever eaten. Think about the best food experience you've ever had in your life. Uh, It could be a place that you go regularly. Maybe it's a restaurant. You just love to eat there because the food is so awesome. It may be a place that you've traveled to that uh, you, you had great memories and just a great culinary experience. Some years ago, Holly and I had the opportunity to travel to France in particular to Lyon, France, which if you know anything about Lyon, it is the culinary capital of France. There's so much to see, so much history to enjoy in that old city, but mostly the food. The food is killer. I'm not kidding. Meats with sauces and fresh French bread and cheeses and soups and desserts and wines and all. Man, the uh, the best meal that we ate was in the old part of the city of Lyon. You're actually in a kind of a fortified castle section of the town. We were outdoor. It was, it was evening. Beautiful old city street. Candlelight. The smell of herbs and spices in the air. Uh, I ordered French onion soup. And I mean, this is not like some French onion soup. This was French onion soup to die for. Uh, They they serve some kind of a very delicate salad. I don't even, I've never had one like it since. Absolutely delicious. I had uh, bouillabaisse and creme brulee, all of which combined is a watertight argument for the existence of God, I might add. (laughs) I mean, food that good says there's got to be a God who's really, really good. Now, there is something about sharing a meal like that, and we got to share that meal with Holly's uh, sister and um, husband, and it was just a, a totally great experience. But there's also something about sharing a meal that can almost be a spiritual experience. If you think about it, other meals are, are, excuse me, other animals also eat food. I mean, all animals do eat some kind of food or another, but animals don't share meals together. Uh, Because meals are, for human beings, about more than food. They always are. Meals are about love. Meals are about relationship. Meals are about connection. Meals are about belonging. It's why when you have a guest to your house, oftentimes you serve them a meal and you enjoy their company. It's why when you celebrate someone's birthday, very often you do that in the context of a meal. It's why when somebody gets married, there will usually be a A reception has a great meal served at that reception. This is also why if there's tension, if there's division, if there's conflict at the dinner table, you can feel it. It spoils the meal. Uh, But then again, great meals also have the power to bring people together. Oscar Wilde, an Irish poet and playwright, made this observation. He said that after a good dinner, you can forgive anybody. And he was, uh, he was joking, of course. That's not entirely true, but it's close to true. Uh, there actually is a meal that's all about forgiveness. And of course, that's the meal that's in front of us. And that's the meal we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, this is, of course, one of the oldest practices in the church. It's not singing worship songs. It's not praying prayers. It's not taking an offering. It's not listening to a sermon. It's a meal. That's what it is. And this shouldn't be surprising to you if you know anything at all about the scriptures. You'll know that throughout the scriptures, at various 
significant moments, they were often marked with special meals. In the Old Testament, because of the culture of hospitality, if a guest arrived at your home, you were really obligated. In fact, many looked forward to the opportunity to show hospitality and feed that guest a meal. Uh, When a birthright in a family was going from the older generation to a younger generation, that was always marked with a very special meal. When temple sacrifices were made, uh, parts of those sacrifices would be consumed at a meal by the person or persons offering that sacrifice. When God's people celebrated how God had delivered them out of Egypt, many of you know this, there was a very special meal. It was a sacramental meal that marked the deliverance of God to bringing his people up and out of Egypt. And that meal, of course, is called the Passover meal when God's angel of death passed over the Israelites because their doorposts were marked with the blood of the lamb. And that was celebrated with a meal. Now, it's interesting. You can find this same pattern, this same significance around meals in the New Testament. It doesn't go away in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is often either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Uh, He's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. What's he doing there? Well, he's having a meal. He's at the home of Mary and Martha. What's he doing there? Well, he's having a meal. He's at Peter's home. What's he doing there? Well, he's having a meal. He invites himself over to Zacharias's home and who is a tax collector and they have a meal together. He does the same thing with Matthew, the tax collector. He goes to Matthew's home and sits down and has a meal with Matthew and his other tax collecting buddies. And if you know these stories, you know something significant happens when you share a meal with Jesus. Not just when you hear a sermon, not just when you pray a prayer, but when you share a meal at Jesus's table, something happens. The most significant meal that Jesus ever shared was the night before he was arrested. It was the night before he was crucified. He gathered his followers together in the upper room. And uh, for what they thought was going to be the traditional Passover meal, that's what they were expecting. They thought they were going to be celebrating what God once did. Turns out they were going to be celebrating what God was about to do. Uh, And Jesus passed the bread And he passed the wine, and he spoke of his body, and he spoke of his blood. And then he said these remarkable words to him. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, he's saying, I want you to practice this. I want you to do this. I want you to repeatedly do this. In fact, when Jesus gave his disciples this moment to reflect this moment to think about his death and resurrection and what it would mean for their lives. It's interesting. He didn't give them a a theory to ponder. That wasn't what he was doing. He actually gave them a meal to share, to rehearse, to remember. And for 2,000 years, that's what Jesus' followers have done. Uh, We know it is communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's referred to as the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. And... um, Lots of people talk about this, have written about this, debate about the meaning of this meal. You know, how is Jesus present in this meal? Huge question. Christians have actually divided up over this question. Is he literally here in bodily form? Catholics would say, yeah, he is. Uh, Is he spiritually here? That's what most of the rest of Christendom have embraced and believed, that he's spiritually here. He's not bodily here. 
Uh, but although there's a great deal of discussion about what that means to be spiritually present, what is clear is this, is that the, this meal is more than just a memorial. This meal is more than just symbolic. Uh, this meal is certainly more than just a religious ritual. Uh, we have some constitutional documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's meant to teach children about the faith. And there's a question in the Shorter Catechism, what is the Lord's Supper? And uh, question 96, and in that part of the answer says this, that in the Lord's Supper, we are made partakers of Jesus' body and blood with all his benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Something spiritual, something real, the spiritual benefits of the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus fed is actually given to those who partake this meal. This meal is a place where grace and community come together. Uh, the good news of Jesus is tangible to us in this meal. In fact, I would say if you misunderstand this meal of Jesus, you risk misunderstanding the entire point of Jesus why he came, who he is. Um, something like that was actually happening in the first century church. The apostle Paul was writing letters to different churches, addressing different problems that they were having. And in this letter to the church in the city of Corinth, he talks about this particular practice of the Lord's Supper because they were struggling there. Many of you have read this letter, 1 Corinthians it's called. And so you know that in this church, there were lots of things going on. Really interesting things. There were divisions among you, like these Elevate Hope people with their shirts on. You know what they're saying, right? You're not with us. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, you know, there were actually divisions. It was like a, it was, there were people wearing special shirts saying, yeah, we're of Apollos, we're of Paul, we're of Jesus, we're the really spiritual group. They're all divided up. It wasn't a pretty picture. There was sexual sin going on in the church at Corinth. Like Elevate Hope. No, I'm kidding. Bad joke. I'm kidding. No, there were people suing each other in the church of Corinth. I mean, all this stuff is going on in the life of the church at Corinth. It was not an ideal picture of Christian community, of Christian ministry, of Christian love and Christian grace. Paul addresses all that stuff. But if you go on to read the letter, here's what's kind of surprising. Paul's toughest words were about how they were practicing this particular meal. Uh, listen to what Paul says as he writes. He, he says the following. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Hmm, that's a pretty serious way to, you know, start your comments, your interactions. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. See, they're dividing up over, you know, God approves us more than he approves you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Absolutely not, he's saying. Your meetings do more harm than good. Wow. Wow. That's a pretty strong indictment 
of the church at Corinth. Let's kind of unpack this. What's going on? What exactly were these people doing? You see, in that day, they didn't meet in in large rooms of this nature, uh, auditoriums, schools, conference rooms, and so, uh, as churches often do today. They would meet in homes. They had to. That was really the only buildings available to them. And in those homes, they would pray and they would sing together. Somebody would read scripture. Somebody would interpret it. uh, And they would always share this meal. It was a regular part of the worship of the early church. And it would take place in a dining room, if this was in a Roman home, called the uh, triclinium. That's not a Star Trek term. That's actually the name for the dining room in a Roman home, triclinium. And there would be three couches put together with a low table in front of them. And uh, this would be the common table. And people would recline and they would eat around this table in the triclinium. Uh, It would accommodate about a dozen or so people. A few more, a few less. Uh, If there were more people, and when the church gathered, there usually would be, if say there were 30, say there were 40, they would gather, those other people would gather in the atriums or in the open courtyard. Roman homes were built on the square and in the middle was an open courtyard and places where people could gather and sit and so. And uh, the way this tended to work, and this is not necessarily true in our day, it can be, but it's not necessarily true, is where you sat at that table in the triclinium, that was actually a symbol for you. Some of you remember how Jesus' disciples would argue about who gets to sit on his left, who gets to sit on his right. You know, why did they have that argument? Well, because it mattered where you sat. We studied this in the book of James. Your status, your rank was being demonstrated by where you sat. And so some of you know that when Jesus would go to dinner at some people's homes, there was all this jockeying for the positions of honor around the table where people would recline. And Jesus would give the little speech, don't worry about sitting in the seats of honor. Why did people worry about it? Well, because it mattered in that culture where you sat. And if you were invited to the meal uh, in the city of Corinth, higher status guests would be invited to dine around the common table in the triclinium. They would recline. They would eat first. They would eat until they were full, in fact while the other guests would wait outside or would often receive leftovers, or if there were no leftovers, well, too bad. Now, here's the thing. This same kind of cultural dynamic was at work in the first century church here at Corinth, uh, with the rich and the respectable dining inside, while the poor and the less reputable were dining outside. And sure, the lower status folks were invited, but by the time the higher status folks finished eating the meal, most of the food, most of the drink, maybe all of the food and all of the drink were gone. And so the rich or prominent who sat in the triclinium near the table of food, they had their fill. The poor possibly had little or none. They watched the rich partake of the Lord's Supper, but there was none left for them. And for Paul, this is a big deal. This practice that this church at Corinth had fallen into. In fact, he goes so far as to say, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
This is demonstrating a separation, a division between us. This one practice, Paul says, is overshadowing everything you do. It's discrediting your whole community by the way you observe this meal. This is supposed to be a together meal, not an us versus them meal. It's like the college admissions scandal. If you follow that over the last year, this thing that was uncovered, uh, wealthy families bribing colleges, coaches, and admission counselors to get their kids into prominent schools, that type of thing. Uh, Apparently, it involves hundreds of people. It involves millions of dollars. It was so massive, the U.S. Department of Education had to do an investigation to get to the bottom of what was going on in places like Yale or places like Georgetown or Stanford. And, you know, in a way, you could wonder, what's really the big deal here? This isn't anything new, is it? It's just a few students, just a little money. But here, it, it was actually a huge deal to the Department of Education, a huge deal because it cast a shadow on everything they were doing. And Paul is saying the Corinthian church has a similar problem. Something is casting a shadow over over everything they say and everything they do. And it all goes back to this table uh, and how they're allowing things like wealth or status or social and cultural norms to determine who's worthy and who isn't, who matters and who doesn't, who sits inside and who sits outside. Uh, Maybe you didn't see it so much when they sang or when they listened to somebody teaching or those kinds of things, but boy, you could see it when it came to their their practice at the table. Um, Because tables too and meals kind of do reveal something about us. I mean, who sits at your table? Who doesn't? That says something about you, something about us. Think about this, in the church today, even though we don't like to admit it, we often do have an us versus them mentality. We, we often do. Um, us are the people who are close friends, right? The people you naturally get along with. These are the people that have similar values. They have similar political leanings, perhaps. Them, well, that's the people who, they look different than you. They live the wrong way. They're sexually promiscuous. They're way too liberal or they're way too conservative. You know, those people. Everyone has a list. And while we might not mind being in the same room with those people or even going to church perhaps with those people when it comes to who we're going to sit down with at the table, uh, when it comes down to who I'm going to call my friend, who I'm going to associate with, who I'm going to eat with, well, we, we start to have our preferences rise to the surface. And that's when the us versus them thing starts to show up. To which Paul says, shall I praise you for this? When the church gathers, you're still divided. Shall I praise you for this? Shall I give you a high five? And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, doing church that way, he says, does more harm than good. I mean, think about that. This means that your church, any church, our church could have the most eloquent vision statement, the most talented music team, the most solid small group curriculum or children or students ministry and actually do more harm if we do nothing to address the problems that divide us in here. Which is why Paul goes on to say this about coming to this meal and about preparing for this table. He says this, he says, a man ought to examine himself. Because there's stuff going on in here, in all of us. And so a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment to himself. And you got to wonder, well, 
What kind of judgment are we talking about, Paul? Well, nothing too serious. Just sickness and death. Those are the two things he mentions. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. And he doesn't mean like some of you right now who are asleep during this message. He means you're dying. Some of you have died. But if we were more discerning, he says, with regard to ourselves, what's going on in here, we would not come under such judgment, he says. Uh, These are strong words, really strong words. What Paul is saying is the meal at this table is not just a private moment between me and God. It's more than that. It's also a moment about me and you. It's about discerning what's in me and you discerning what's in you. It's about discerning the body of Christ without recognizing the body of the Lord, Paul said. It's about discerning the body of Christ, Jesus' body as it's displayed in the elements, the bread, the juice, but it's also about Jesus' body, the church, and this community of God. It's about looking for the hidden agendas that are in me, the us and the them thing. That goes on in me. And it's about working through those things in my heart in preparation for a meal that calls me to repent of that kind of thinking. Things where prejudice and judgmentalism and self-righteousness or lack of law, love for others or concern for others, that stuff needs to be examined, identified, and repented of. And it's not just out there in the world. It's in here. It's in us. Now, here's the deal. The people there in Corinth, they, they could not fix this problem. They really could not. These are habits of the mind, habits of the heart. And they run really, really deep in all of us. And here's the thing. The left can't fix this. The right can't fix this. Money cannot fix this. Technology cannot fix this. Education cannot fix this. You think about all these things. Left-leaning politics, right-leaning politics, social media, higher education, technology. Are, the, are these things actually helping us get better and better with time? You know, more and more thoughtful, more and more forgiving, more and more respectful of one another, humble towards each other, helpful toward one another? I don't think so. Last time I checked, things were more divisive and divided than ever. We have conflict about how to resolve conflict. And on and on it goes. But here's the good news. (laughs) The really good news. Jesus can fix this. In fact, part of why this table matters so much and part of why Paul is so heated about this is precisely because Jesus did something about this problem in us. He did something that actually makes real community and real connection with other people who are different than us possible. Jesus' body broken and blood shed were all about a new kind of agenda, all about a a meal that illustrated something different that constituted a new body. And that's why this meal is so important, which brings us back to Paul's words. These are familiar words. If you've ever been in a communion service, you've heard these words before. They're called the words of institution for this sacrament. Paul says, and I quote, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, and that's where that word Eucharist comes from, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, and hear these words, they're really important words, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a little ironic, I think, that this meal with Jesus' disciples, we call it the Last Supper. There's a a sense, a legitimate sense, in which it's really the, the first supper. Uh, it's the first meal in a new kind of community with a different hidden agenda, if you will, an agenda designed to topple all the agendas of every culture of every time, including our own. Something very subversive is latent in this meal. And I want to mention three elements. I'm going to mention these quickly of this different agenda that this table purports to drive home into our hearts. Here's the first one. This table is a place where anybody is welcome. You see, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've believed in the past, regardless of who you've been in the past, in fact, uh, this meal is for you. In, In fact, in the first century, Middle Eastern culture, the act of sharing a meal was a symbol of acceptance. Uh, much less so today, perhaps. But in that day, if you shared a meal with someone, you were embracing them, you were welcoming them, you were accepting them. If you had an enemy and you wanted to make peace with them, well, the way to really seal that deal is to have a meal together. Um, Which is why, by the way, religious leaders were always so ticked off at Jesus because he kept having meals with people he shouldn't be eating with, tax collectors, sinners, you know, because it was more than just a meal in that culture. His eating with them was a sign of love. It was a sign of welcome. It was a sign of acceptance. He wanted them to join him. He wanted them to receive the grace of God, to repent of their sins, come into the family of God. It's amazing to me that at the last uh, Jesus' Last Supper, he offered the bread and the cup to Judas. I mean, this is the follower who had already decided in his heart to betray Jesus, and Jesus gives him the bread. Amazingly, he offers this meal to us too, because all of us have betrayed him. Come to my table, he says. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, no matter how badly you've messed up, this meal is grace to you. That's the first thing. Second thing, this table is a place where nobody is perfect. And here, if I'm being honest, this gets dicey because you have to admit it. You have to be honest. This table is a place where nobody gets to pretend they're any better than they really are. Everybody's welcome to this table, but not everybody's ready for this table. Judas was offered the bread, as I said, but he wasn't ready for it. The Apostle John tells us this, that as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. Why? Because you see, he had a different agenda than surrendering himself, his life, his time, his talent, his treasure to Jesus. His agenda was different. Raises a question for all of us. What is your agenda when you come to this table? We've all got agendas. We need to repent of many of them. What's going on in your heart? 
Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do not come to this table proclaiming our own self-sufficiency. We don't come comparing ourselves favorably to those other people, right? We don't come pretending to be any better than we actually are. Now, when people walk into church today, it's no different today than it was in Jesus' day. There's a great temptation for us to try to pretend. You know, I'm better than I really am. I'm going to pretend to be better than I really am. But the fact is, none of us want to admit, none of us want to come clean, none of us want to own the fact that we are messed up. And what is more, we've messed other people up. I know this about you. I know this about me. Truth is, our failures, our brokenness, our sin is not okay. It's not, oh, that's okay. God doesn't say that. Our sin is ugly. It deserves to be punished. The good news is Jesus invites you to this table. And that means there is still grace for you and for me. He died in your place. He died for your sins, not because you're okay, not because you deserve it, but precisely because you don't. I don't. And accepting an invitation to this meal means you come clean. (laughs) You have to. You say, I need help. I am not okay. Because we so often do communion in larger group settings just like this, we can miss how personal and how vulnerable this meal is actually meant to be as we relate directly to God himself. This note was posted on on the door of a Catholic church. You know how sometimes they'll... uh, there's, these people will publish dumb stuff that gets said on uh, the, uh, advertise, on the um, signs of churches. Well, this is a real note that was uh, put up on a church, a Catholic church store. It said, confession today will be at exactly 5.30 p.m. There will be one priest available for confession today. Make your point and confess only your sins and offenses. There is no need to explain why you did it. Thank you very much. Wow, if it were only that simple, (laughs) right? But you see, communion reminds us that forgiveness isn't transactional. It's not mechanical. Forgiveness is relational. It's very personal. You remember after Peter denied Jesus three times, Uh, Jesus didn't pull him aside for a quick confession. You don't need to tell me why you did it, Peter. Just, you know, just mention it. No, he actually invited Peter to a meal. Literally, he said, come and have breakfast. And then at that breakfast, they started talking. And that conversation got really personal, really specific. Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That was the claim that Peter had made earlier. That's how meals with Jesus work, friends. You can't hide when you come to church, not from God. We can hide from each other. You're not hiding from God. You can't hide when you come to this table, not from God. This meal is for people who are broken, and know it. That's number two. Number three, this table reminds us of where true community is possible. Now here, Paul's final words about how we we should practice communion. Hear these words. He writes and he says, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. 
That was Paul's issue with the way they were doing communion. The point isn't whether you use wine or juice or whether you pass trays or come forward. The important point is we eat together at the level foot of the cross. You see, we got haves and have nots. We've got poor people. We've got prominent people. We've got black next to white, next to brown, uneducated, next to educated, older, next to younger, not just as people who happen to attend the same church, but as people called together by the same Savior and put into, adopted into the family or the body of Jesus Christ. We come really as spiritual friends to the same table. Because at this table, you see, there's no them. There's only us. People deeply loved, people deeply broken, people all in need of grace, all coming together because we follow Jesus together. And here's the thing. There's there's no other table like this. Nowhere else. There's no other meal like this. Friends, it's this table that reminds us of Jesus It's this table that calls us to deeper community with each other, deeper connectedness, no us and them. This table encourages us to live out the reality of being part of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, forgive me for a moment, but I'm going to just a, a blatant commercial here for a moment, okay? Here at Deer Creek Church, we do this thing of community in a practical, tangible way. We do it in small groups. I said blatant, unapologetic commercial, right? (laughs) Small groups are one of our big three. We've only got three, by the way, but one of our big three, reaching up, we talked about it last week, reaching in and reaching out. In small groups, we pray together. In small groups, we share together. In small groups, we study together. We shepherd one another. We grow together in small groups. So get in a small group. Start a small group. Uh, live out in practical ways what we celebrate here in this meal. That's what we do in small groups. Here at Deer Creek Church, we only do, as I said, three things. We reach up, we connect with God in worship. We do this every Sunday. We reach in in small groups, connecting with each other. We reach out, serving others, using our spiritual gifts. This is how we make disciples at Deer Creek Church. There's no other way. Just these three things. And I'll say this, I don't know anyone who is consistently practicing these three things that is not growing as a follower of Jesus. Now, the reverse is also true. I don't know anyone who takes worship casually. Eh, I don't feel like it this morning, not going. Or who is not in a small group. I don't need that. That's just a pain. Or who does not serve, who is really growing as a disciple of Jesus. Because this is a simple rhythm that we see in the life of Jesus. It's one we ought to emulate or follow. Now, in a moment, we're going to share this meal together. The table that has already been set. The words of institution have been read. Uh, Now it's just about what's going on in here for you and me. In your heart, if you feel like you're okay, nothing broken in you, no mending or fixing necessary, I don't need to connect with God. I don't need to connect with people. I don't need connection. I don't need community. This table is not for you. But if you're not okay, and you know it, and you're willing to admit and confess that, repent of it, and you acknowledge that you need God, and you need, in fact, other people, 
representing God in your life, involved in your life, who follow Jesus, who will help challenge you to grow. If you know you need a savior, if you know you're part of the body of Christ because of the faith that you have in Jesus and you know that Jesus is your savior, then this table is absolutely for you. And here's what's really cool about this. When we practice this table, this thing of communion, we're not just looking back to what Jesus did. We're also looking ahead to what he's going to do. When Jesus talked about heaven, he would often do so in the context of a feast. Uh, He would talk about this great feast that we were going to partake of someday. And uh, he would also talk about this as a feast that nobody deserves. This is a feast or a meal nobody earns. You just come home and you receive this meal, this feast. You know, when prodigals or sinners come home, they're not just welcomed with a handshake or a hug. There's always a feast. There's a meal. One of my favorite books uh, read many years ago is uh, Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. And in it, he tells this story that illustrates what we're practicing right now and what we're looking forward to in the future uh, when we come uh, to the very presence of Jesus in heaven. And I'd like to read part of it to you as kind of our invitation to this meal if I can. So I know it's a terrible idea to read to people on a Sunday morning. You're hungry, I've been mentioning food a lot and your mind's wandering and, uh, but I'm gonna read to you anyway. And and I apologize ahead of time, I might weep, maybe I won't, but this thing just tears me up. But it's it's a powerful story by Philip Yancey. It says, a young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. And they ground her a few times, and she just seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her dad when he knocks at the door of her bedroom after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she's been mentally rehearsing scores of times, and she runs away. Now, she has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group. And her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. And he offers her a ride and buys her lunch and arranges a place for her to stay. And he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And the good life continues for a month, two months, a year. And the man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. And she lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money that she gets goes to her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the department stores, and she no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper and her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers that she's piled atop her overcoat. God, why did I ever leave? She says to herself. 
and pain stabs at her heart. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, you know, I guess I'll just stay on the bus. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. And her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech that she's preparing to give to her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine, Dad. Can you forgive me? And she says those words over and over and over. And when the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, 15 minutes, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror and smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off her teeth. And she looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents are going to notice. Of course, that's even if they're here. And she walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not... Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There amidst the concrete walls and the plastic chairs stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great grandmother to boot. (laughs) And they're all wearing ridiculous looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. And she looks through tears and begins the speech that she's memorized. Dad, I'm sorry. I know, and he interrupts her, hush, child. No time for that right now. You'll be late for the party. Wow. Wow. A banquet is waiting for you at home. And here's the point. You know, this meal that we're going to partake of is just a little taste of that kind of meal. This meal is just a little bit of practice for that meal that's yet to come. That meal where Jesus throws parties for sinners who absolutely don't deserve it. And when we come to this table remembering that all Jesus gave up for us and remembering that we don't just look back, we also examine our hearts. We look forward and we're amazed, amazed, amazed at what Jesus does for us. We look ahead to that day when we, as the prodigals, get to come home 
And Jesus, with a beaming smile on his face, as if he's about to offer us a little taste of heaven, says, so who's ready to eat? Let's pray. Jesus, we know we don't deserve this meal. We know we haven't earned this meal. And yet you still invite us to your table. Prodigal daughters and prodigal sons, more broken than we'd like to admit in a world divided by us and them kinds of thinking. And we come together as one community, equally loved but equally broken to your great table of grace. You've been waiting for this moment for us to practice receiving your grace like that father waiting for the lost child to come home. And so, Lord, in these moments, as we take these elements, we remember what you did. And we confess all of the ways we're part of the problems in our world. And we boldly receive amazing grace, free to us, but at great cost to you. On that cross, your body and blood were given for us, Jesus, that we might be welcomed home to the greatest meal the universe has ever known. And it's your meal. And it's you that bids us come. And we thank you for this, Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.